Hello, I'm Rabbi Iggy, and welcome to Tattoos and Torah. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tattoos and Torah. It's nice to see or hear everyone, uh, now that we're both on video and on sound. We have our very exciting guest today, Dr. Ken Vu, or Dr. V, who exemplifies resilience, having survived as an infant refugee on a challenging journey to America. We'll talk about that. Uh, overcoming diabetes and high blood pressure, Dr. V now champions optimal health, happiness, and the human potential. An assistant professor at UCLA, Dr. V specializes in interventional and diagnostic radiology before pursuing additional training in performance and longevity medicine, earning board certification from the American Board of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine. He is the founder of VUUMD, VUMD, Performance and Longevity. Dr. V advises athletes, executives, celebrities, and organizations towards longevity and peak performance. Dr. V is also the number one best-selling author of The Thrive State, media expert, keynote speaker, and workshop facilitator at prominent events, including engagements with Whole Foods, Bank of America, JP Morgan. He has also appeared on platforms like ABC News, TEDx, uh, Doctors, Access Hollywood, empowering others to activate the biology of longevity and human potential within themselves. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Iggy, it's good to connect. It's been nearly a year since the biohacking conference in which we met. And thank you for being so gracious with your energy, with your love. I could feel it. And so when you asked me to be on this podcast, it was a resounding yes. Yeah, it's really amazing. I think that's sort of kind of where we could start, right? So like two things are sort of that I think are at the seed of all things. One is just human connection, right? What going to somebody and being your authentic self and telling them how much you enjoy their presence, their wisdom, what that can really do for you, right? And what can that like really cannot be replaced by anything else to just say and right, look somebody in the eye and shake their hand and be like, wow, you're great. <laughs> and two, the ability to grow and learn right together from that conference and in general. But I think what is really phenomenal about what you're doing and why I really wanted you on the podcast is this idea of what I would call sovereignty, right? Over your own choices, your body, your longevity, and what was so moving about your presentation then, but also the work sort of you've been doing before and since is about the ability to take control of your life. Absolutely. And you brought a perfect word that I think I might be using more often it really is sovereignty is to truly understand the power you have over yourself. And almost, I believe, in order to be sovereign, you have to understand yourself, your biology, and what comes with you. Because when you can start to understand that, you can start to be able to wake up to potential choices in your life that you thought were your own, but it, something just stopped you. And I think that's the most beautiful part. If we could start to understand the parts of us that are just conditioned and programmed in our life. And once we start to understand, oh, wow, there's this part of me that wants to keep me safe, that's helping me survive, that has learned all these things as a child so that I can be protected. Those very same things could potentially, for many people, only because it's used to keep you safe. Well, 
here's the thing. The thing that's used to keep you safe is the thing that is a fight survival mechanism. And if that mechanism is constantly on, the choices that you make in that survival mode ultimately will lead you to disease, maybe a failure of a relationship, or whatever it might be. The world of the universe seems to kind of wake you up at some point. But if you could start to recognize that part of yourself that is this automatic, conditioned part that's there to keep you safe, love it, but recognize that if you could see that, you could make choices beyond that. You could make choices beyond the habit of your previous self so that you can create and remember who you really are. Right. So, so many just in that, so many things just in that. One, I use sovereignty a lot, right? Because I think no other word allows you to understand that you always have a choice, right? Like many times I say that sort of when people say, oh, I don't have a choice, what they really mean is I don't want to pay the consequences of my choices, <laughs> right? But you can, you, you have a choice. You can say now, you know what? Screw this. Walk out, right? Buy a ticket to Costa Rica and just leave, right? You can empty your bank account and, right? So you always have a choice, but but I think that the part that is important about what you just said and in general is to recognize that it's such a first step in every kind of growth and healing, right? That everything I do has a consequence. I have the choice. I have sovereignty over my body, over my my mind, over my feelings. We'll talk about that. And we, so like Truva, which is the organization, so like under this is sort of that I created, right? Sort of means three things in Hebrew. Truva means to repent and reflect. Truva means an answer, as in question and answer. But Truva also means to return to a higher self or to return home. And in that sense, the ability to return, as you just said, is so important as we make as we make those choices. And lastly, right, the sort of addiction, which is the majority of the people sort of that that we work with starts as a solution to a problem, right? So like addiction starts as a solution, right? It's that drink before the party to kind of loosen things up, right? It's the, right, the drugs that sort of take away the pain, right? The opiates, the sort of that, right, sort of numb you, right? It's a solution and it works for a while until you lose control. Absolutely. And, you know, I used to be somebody probably 20 years ago to look at people who were overweight or people who had serious drug alcohol problems and make judgments as to the character that would get into those problems. But certainly as I understood my own addictions and uh, started to understand a little bit more about the health space and understanding trauma in our lives, we know that there are times where people have uncomfortable feelings within them, emotional feelings that are discomfort. And those things tend to be whatever the thing that they might be addicted to might be those things that actually calm down some pain, some fear, some anxiety, some worry, whatever it might be underneath. And you're completely right, is that addiction becomes a temporary solution, albeit a long, bad-term habit for that particular person. And as I was judging previously, you look at that person saying, well, what kind of a person will do this? To more of a curious compassion, certainly for myself and for others, to be able to understand that there's usually some sort of initial pain that have driven the solution to be this one particular habit. And unless we can understand that, we're not fully able to connect with, have compassion for, and treat the people with addictions. That's right. No, you're absolutely correct. So uh, we'll get to your story in, in a minute, but 
I guess for those people who don't know, right, what is longevity medicine, right? Like, what is that, right? Well, it's a relatively new field. Some people call it anti-aging. Some people call it longevity medicine. It's under the umbrella of what some people consider lifestyle medicine. Because what we're beginning to understand is the things that predispose us to early aging is just how we approach life. And we take Mm -hmm. it on the flip side and and look at the populations in the world where people live the longest. It's not because they have extra access to tech and to medicines and all those things. In fact, it's the opposite. Right. They don't have access to stem cells, the exosomes, the biohacking, but they're living these long lives. And is there something we could learn from them? So my book Thrives Day really seeks to understand that. And it turns out how we live our life is actually medicine, that the energetic that we give to our DNA, like how we live our life actually creates an energetic field of who we are. And this is the science of epigenetics. Epigenetic tells us that our cellular fate, our longevity, our performance, our health isn't dictated by the genes that are in it, but actually how these genes react to its environment. So our genes are constantly Mm -hmm. listening to its external environment. Who controls that environment? We do. And so part of longevity medicine, it, you know, it's really broken up into two forms and I'm more interested in one form. One, we have Mm -hmm. the science of longevity, which if you go to a biohacking conference, when you go to a lot of these longevity conferences, they talk about all this new science and technology, diagnostics to be able to look for cancers at a very early stage, genetic tests, epigenetic tests, things like that, stem cells, exosomes. That's the science mm-hmm. of longevity. However, I'm really focused on the other, which is what people had in the blue zones. It's really the art of living. Mm. How are we approaching our life? What type of choices are we making at every single moment? Because every single ch- choice creates an energetic that ultimately feeds into our DNA that basically determines our health or longevity or performance. And every single choice could either be poison for us or it could be our medicine. Right. How did you get there, right? And I guess it's a twofold question because part of your own biography is sort of as presented is comes from, I would say, uh, a somewhat traumatic, right? So like ex- experience as a kid, right? Being a refugee, right? So like moving from somewhere that sort of that is not your ancestral home, right? And then your own journey, so like to, right, so like fighting sort of diabetes, fighting, right, high, high blood pressure. How did you get to where you were in a way that sort of that allows you to both reflect on sort of like what you've learned, but also, and I think this is sort of the, the implied sort of agenda of the question is so many people get stuck in victimhood, mm-hmm. right? So many people can get stuck in being a victim, a refugee, a whatever it is, right? Uh, Being bullied in high school, whatever, whoever it is. How does your story inform you, the work that you do to have being in a state of thriving? (laughs) Well, great question. And uh, for people who don't know, yes, I actually was born in post-war Vietnam. I became the only infant to survive an eight-month refugee boat experience. I was on a boat for eight months in a Philippine refugee camp for another three months before we responded to America. And I grew up in Chinatown, Los Angeles. I was constantly being bullied for the holes in my hand, out clothes, for the stinky food my mom made me go to school with. And I was always asked to go home. Go home, chinky. Right. That was the narrative. And so who was I as a kid? You know, I start to think back, who was this kid? How did he grow up? Well, 
one of the things I just started to understand that who I was wasn't accepted. It was different. Maybe I needed to be different. Maybe I needed to be more. And I made up the story as a child that I needed things outside of myself because it wasn't the color of my skin. It wasn't how tall I was. And I wasn't very rich. All these other things that I probably got from society for maybe watching right. some of my teachers and things like that, that said that who I was was not enough. Now I know that to be a common story of every single child, because if they don't feel love and they don't feel safe, they start to make up stories when they don't feel very good. And one of the common things that people make up is they're somehow not enough. And for me, chasing success was the program I was living in. I was constantly chasing it. I am not enough. And so that, that was basically the underlying program. And I needed success to be loved and to be worthy. And so at every point of my life, whether it be in high school, college, going into medical school, I was striving constantly, chasing this thing because of a program, because of these preconditioned things that I got earlier on. And here's one of the things I want people to, to recognize, but yes, you get programmed by basically the culture of and attitudes and the beliefs of your parents, of your teachers, of TV, of media. Mm -hmm. And kids also learn and remember things that hurt them. Right. And there are big T traumas that, that kids would go through, which actually increases the rate for addiction, which includes divorce, drugs, physical abuse, and all those things. But there's smaller things too. When a child doesn't feel seen, heard, or loved, or not able to just be who they are emotionally. And for those things, people will tend to adapt and become something to give them more love. Right. And so I'd like to let people know that there is a biology that neuroscientists are beginning to understand, a system in our body called the default mode network, which is a very primitive system in our body and nervous system that starts taking down all this information, remembers the things that hurt us. And this becomes basically this operating system by which we live life. And then for me, not feeling like I was enough or worthy, was constantly chasing success. I got the things that were supposed to make me happy and healthy. The car, the house, all these things, chief of interventional radiology in my hospital. But in the pinnacle of that, I was tired. I was overweight. I was diabetic. I had high blood pressure. And I was on several prescription medications. Me, a medical doctor, was actually sick. And it was basically from that moment on, the gift of the universe. And I think everybody's given a gift that might not look like a gift initially because it might look like, you know, rock bottom for a lot of people. Right, right. Or, or, right. <laughs> and it was that process of studying nutrition and epigenetics. It was that process of doing deep spiritual work with shamans, working with thought leaders like Tony Robbins, Dave Asprey, things like that, when it really started to uncover these things. And it turns out this default mode network Many people refer, if they watch the movie, The Matrix, they would understand that, oh my God, people are basically living in these programs that are out there, mm -hmm. not being conscious of the choices that they're making because they're working through these programs. Here's the thing, that default mode network is there to keep us safe and help us survive. And so it is a very egocentric type of system that this default mode network is in. And here's the thing, what happens when we are not safe and we're not survived. If that default mode network is active and that's the primary program that you're living in, you'll be living in a state of constant stress because you're constantly looking out for the things in the world that can hurt you. That increases inflammation, that lowers your immune system, and that puts you prone to get chronic disease and symptoms like brain fog and not performing very well. 
So that sounds and and sort of like right a lot like what in psychology or sort of like right in so spiritual we call is PTSD, right? So like is a systematic constant stress anxiety response to unresolved traumas, unresolved experiences, right? It doesn't allow us to get to a space where we can sort of kind of fall into sort of right sort of more relaxed, more connected, more integrated spaces. Is that right? Absolutely. What was the word that, that you used to describe it? I, I missed that first thing. PTSD. Oh, PTSD. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. In a way, it's kind of like PTSD. PTSD is where you have one resounding trauma that your brain remembers and your nervous system is there. So any sort of thing that reminds you of that will put you back in that state. Very similarly, just going through life, you have much smaller versions of that. And it becomes insidious and it almost sort of becomes, oh, okay, if I'm not getting super alarmed or super anxious, I right. might might not have PTSD, but you've got these smaller things that if not left resolved, it constantly basically puts you in this stress state. So you're very much right. But PTSD is, is considered something where the trauma is much, just much, much larger. Yeah, of course. So how do we rewrite that, right? How do we, right, go and I guess go against or able to sort of use this knowledge of, right, of, of DMN, right, and to be better, right? Because some people would say like, well, then you're stuck with it. But I think that there's ways to, right, here you are, right? So like post-diabetes, post-high blood pressure, right? So like clearly not overweight, right? So, right, so everybody can see from the video, but, right, and much, much, much happier. Absolutely. So why I do a lot of my work is certainly awareness, and it starts there awareness. I would probably say that I would probably say that in my stress state, I didn't even know I was in a program. This was everyday life. I needed to get the car and the house. I needed my bank account to be a certain level. Otherwise, I feel like I am failing and might as well be dying, right? I didn't realize I was in this reality that was created. I didn't I wasn't aware of the default mode network which I, I feel I think is so empowering and freeing for people to understand, oh, potentially the way I think, the way I feel, and how I approach the world might actually not truly be the world, but it's only my world. And I think for many people to start to be able to understand that is step one, because the transformation won't happen overnight. And I'll tell you basically, the people that tend to have a very overactive DMN that has a lot of traumas and things like that with the addictions, addictions or whatever those activities might be, pornography, smoking, gambling, sex, food, gambling, any of those things are basically some sort of way to feel mm -hmm. certain of a potential euphoric dopamine hit mm -hmm. when there are uncomfortable feelings behind that. And so that's something to understand there. But I think awareness is step one. That if you happen to be listening and you happen to feel like you're a victim or you feel like life isn't going your way, is if you could start to say, hmm, not everybody in the world thinks or feels this way. Why do I? And then that starts to uncover some of the work or some of the past. Mm -hmm. And then it makes you go, oh, in the past, were there moments in my life where I didn't feel safe, didn't feel loved? Oh, that starts to kind of give you an idea of why. I don't, I don't think you need to pinpoint the moments, the moments or, or whatever it is need to define it. But when you can start to understand that how you might be thinking, feeling, and behaving 
Mm -hmm. is a part of an old program, you could start to make changes because next time something comes up, next time you feel anger, next time you feel triggered at some point, you can pause and go, oh, something just came up. Mm -hmm. I wonder why I have this. And then feel it. Don't try to resist it. Feel it, but try to understand it. Is it a part of you that felt unsafe or unloved? And there, is there a part of you now that can give yourself what that child has needed? And those might start to get into parts of the modalities can help people realize that they're in a DMN state and then start to make new choices. Right. So I guess, right, so like that is the question. What are those new choices, right? Because, because I do think that everybody, right, everybody has at moments felt unsafe. Everybody at moments felt unloved. That's the human condition, right? Nobody, right? Right, even the Buddha, right, who was living in a golden palace, right, had to be exposed at some point to some kind of pain and misery, right? So, how do you do that, right? So, like, what once the awareness, right, they seek you out, and you know, Doctor V, what do I do? That's great questions. Well, if you are in a program, the program is running and not you. And if you are in the program, you are not aware that you are in the program, and that's making choices for you. So one of the things to be able to start to cultivate is awareness and attention, which is why meditation, uh, walks in nature are very good because it actually puts you out there. Now, so many people are living in this world where they're in the program and every day it's just like they'll work, do, think, feel the exact same things, but it's not the things that are actually in their body. You might not notice sort of like, the little tiny fly on, on their skin or the wind blowing through that because they're in their head. Right. So how do you start to build the muscle of awareness is one to have awareness is to maybe take a little practice, five or 10 minutes where maybe you're watering the flowers and then really supercharge your senses. What are the colors? What are the different textures of colors? What is the smell of the wind? How is that texture and feel and sense everything? Because the more you build that muscle, the more you be able to have the awareness when you're not in that state, where when you're in that program. So that's one of those things I think are, are so important with meditation and mindfulness is building the muscle of awareness and attention. That's number one. The other thing I find is, is very helpful would be different modalities to actually turn off the default mode network, right? Your default mode network is actually living in physical structures in your body and nervous system. Mm -hmm. How do you turn them off? And one of the most powerful ways of doing that is what some people term psychedelic or transformational breath work. Mm -hmm. And that's really breathing rhythmically. And then you add some potentially some uh, breath holds in there. Mm -hmm. What does that do physiologically? So I've heard different people who, who practice this talk about release of DMT and things like that. I don't know about that. I, I only speak on the medical science part. Yeah, of course. Well, when you're when you're hyperventilating, what you're doing is you're blowing off CO2. Mm -hmm. When you blow off CO2, you raise the alkalinity of your blood and you also constrict your blood vessels, mm -hmm. including the blood vessels going on, going to your brain. What it does is it actually turns off certain areas of your brain and turns on certain areas of your brain. Part of the areas of the brain that get turned off, guess what? The default mode network. And then when you add breath holds, what happens is you stress the body even more. So potentially you have a drop in the default mode network now, some people say, you know, when you have the breath hold, you've got intermittent hypoxia. What we do know about DMT, which many people consider this spirit molecule, mm -hmm. it's released in the body when 
you know, people have near death experiences, which is why, you know, so many people have these aha moments if they had near death experiences. It's possible, though we don't, we haven't been able to measure this. Right, that right. Could it lead to a stress in the body that causes a little bit of, of DMT release, which is why people have these psychedelic experiences when they breathe that way? But transformational psychedelic style breathing is something that I lead people through. We actually have a course on that as well. But that has been able to quiet that down. And if you're able to quiet that down, you can start to process things that has been trapped in your body for a long time. Right. And certainly, we know there's a lot of research and science going to, into psychedelic medicine. They're basically using compounds like DMT, like right. psilocybin, like MDMA, to also quiet down the default mode network to get people through healing, grieving processes, right. treating PTSD, depression, anxiety, and things of that nature. It's funny, I, I would say, right, sort of like, so I was introduced to breath work like over 20 years ago in, in India, what we would call pranayama, right, the victorious breath. And I think for me, right, it, does, it goes back again to a certain amount of sovereignty, which is how do I make the implicit explicit? How do I, right, so like look at my own body and the thing that sort of that is most unaware of, like, which is the breath. Right? Because all of us breathe, right? So well, most of us, right? All of us breathe, but we're not aware of it. And if you actually become aware of it, it can become quite debilitating, right? If I start to be aware of my breath, it can become a little bit like, am I doing it? Am I not, right? So like you have to kind of let go a little bit. But I think in that sense, the breath work that I've been practicing for so many years does have those moments of white light moments and stuff. But, but more importantly, it allows the body to understand its own power over all the different aspects of it. Absolutely. So here's the awesome thing about the breath too, and that it's tied to probably the most important striated muscle we have in our body, which is the diaphragm. And the importance of that is why you've got basically the phrenic nerve that attaches your nervous system to the diaphragm. You've got these intercostal nerves and they all meet up basically mm -hmm. in the medulla oblongata, which is your respiratory centers. You've got the crossing of a lot of nerves and within the crossing of all these different nerves, are also sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Mm -hmm. So that basically when your body thinks that you're, you are in fear, the sympathetic system will turn on. And there's actually a breathing pattern for almost every single emotional state that you are in. So many people breathe with their mouth and they'll just kind of breathe up in their chest. And that's actually the breathing pattern of somebody who's stressed. Imagine running away from a bear. Basically, you're doing the same breathing pattern through your mouth, up in the chest, you're just doing a lot heavier. That's right. But because all these systems are linked and it's linked down physically to this, breathing is something you could actually control consciously, but the breathing pattern could then be used as a hack to hack the other part of the nervous system. That's right. So if you were to just focus on your on a long exhale and you're able to do this better if you're almost blowing out through your mouth mm -hmm. as if you're blowing through a straw and really extended eight seconds, 10 seconds, Right. that long exhale actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system and brings you more in a calm and rested state. Yeah, that's exactly right. And at least right for me as a spiritual leader, right, the ability to connect that to the breath of the world, right? The sort of that, right? The sort of that as the world was created, there was, right? It was through breath. It was through words, right? And that, the ability to be able to connect to the rhythm of the world, right? Allows you to have more clarity and definitely more sovereignty around 
your own well-being, right? So that's sort of that I, I won't, I won't, I'm not running, bear's not chasing me. Why am I breathing like a bear, right? So like, so breath work, awareness, for sure, right? Right. Do you find that as a doctor, right, sort of like people will be like, oh my God, he's a goner. This is so woo-woo, right? Just give me the pill, right? Sort of like, do you find, right, sort of that, right, there's a tension, unfortunately, between Right, so like the biohacking of life, or or at least for me, right? So like maybe one day I'll sort of like teach it at the conference, like, but I want to I talk about biohacking your soul, right? But I think for a lot of people, right, they go to the doctor when they feel ill, when they feel sick, and they want a fix, right? They a lot there's some resistance to like, oh, you're gonna have to change your life. Yes, I can give you insulin, I can give you metformin, but really what you really want you to do is change your lifestyle. Yeah, I would probably say the following that, you know, the medications that are out there are really there to promote continuing the same consciousness, so living in ego consciousness and the choices of stress and worry that led to the lifestyle choices that produced the thing. It's able to basically promote and act as a band-aid for that type of living. I always do feel that people can make some great choices now. There could be situations where you've got some sort of emergency because if you happen to be with somebody that is emotionally at wit's end and they're basically tapped into a consciousness that's telling them to end their life or because it's too painful or even on the, the medical emergency side, you get to a point where the, the blood pressure is like 225 over something. There, there are certain things that you need to do emergently to kind of stop right. that process because it can be used as a band-aid while you start to integrate these new sort of lifestyle awareness and mindfulness practices. So I wouldn't say that for somebody who has mild symptoms that that should be the first way to go. However, there are emergency situations where you might use a medication to prevent a very deadly or fatal result while then starting to slowly integrate the practices to bring you back to you. Right. So in that sense, right, how do you, right, how do your thoughts or or your emotions sort of change your biology, right? How do you use sort of like what, what we've been talking about, what you learned to actually, right, be better, right? Or at least sort of get on the path of being better. Yeah. So there, there are different little hacks you can do. Firstly, I want you know to let people know that if you study my book, Thrive State, you'll understand that everything is energetically connected. And you basically have five major things that you can kind of consider, which is your physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual aspects all are energetically connected. And if one thing is off, it's going to bring down the energy of everything. So I could tell if somebody is overweight, low energy, and physically they're off, that probably their mind is probably not as creative and probably potentially think and in stressful thoughts and therefore emotions as well. So they're all energetically connected. That's something we should know best. What makes it awesome is that because they're all energetically connected, you could do something on the physical realm, such as breathing to change your state that will automatically bring up your emotions. And then you'll start thinking differently as well. That's a really cool thing. And I teach that you know, in my book and in my courses. Right. So breaking down to emotions and thoughts, they're all energetically connected. So emotions, what we do know is emotions of anger, of fear, of resentment, of worry, of anxiety, all those 
quote unquote negative emotions bring up the stress hormone. And what it does to our body is it increases inflammation, it decreases immune system that will put us prone to getting chronic disease and chronic symptoms. Flip that on the other side. We also know that emotions of love, of connection, of joy, of peace, of calm, and the number one emotion of all, gratitude. All those are healing. And you can't be in those emotions and be in those negative emotions at the same time. It's a different part of the nervous system. You are in a different state. And like I said, the state determines our biology, right? And so when we're in those other emotions, we know that they're anti-aging. We know that gratitude has has been shown in medical literature to decrease inflammations like TNF-alpha, IL-1, IL, IL-6, and IL-12. We know these things. That's on the emotion side. Well, guess what? Thoughts. Mm-hmm. What we think, we feel. And the things that we can do, there are actually things that we can do to biohack our thoughts because if we change thoughts or change our perception of thoughts or, or, or how we think, we'll change how we feel. So here's the cool thing. I want people to recognize four things they can do in terms of their thought. You can't control the thoughts that come into your mind. You've got 80,000 thoughts. 80% of those thoughts every single day will be negative. And that's because it's living in that default mode network. It's always there to keep you safe. You're, so you're running so many negative things in your head. Know that. You can't control that. Right. However, you can control the focus of those thoughts. You can control where you shine the flashlight. So focus is the first thing. Focus. Are you focusing on what you don't have? Are you focusing on things you can't control? Because I'll tell you, that'll put you in the stress state versus can you focus on the things you have and you can control? That will bring you more towards gratitude Mm -hmm. and a sense of certainty. Next are your beliefs and your mindset. Can you start to evaluate that? Can you evaluate, oh my God, life sucks and it's because my bank account went to X. You go, hmm. Is that really true? Do I feel this way because of that one thing in my bank account? Can I swap the way I feel about that? So just to evaluate your beliefs and your thoughts. Next is the meaning that you give to things, right? I shared one thing in the biohacking conference. This is a quote from Byron Katie, life is simple. Mm-hmm. Everything happens for you and not to you. And you could just ask yourself, if this is happening to you, you run basically in that victim consciousness and, and you get stressed out. But if like, no, this is happening for me, even if it's seemingly something really bad, is it there to teach you a lesson? Is it going to make you stronger, more resilient? So the meaning that you give to the things will change the way you feel as well. And lastly, sorry, is, is the story that you tell about yourself to yourself about your life. If you can write yourself a story like where I'm at at this point is perfect because I learned X and Y and Z before that those things actually happened for me so I could do this now. Mm-hmm. And if you change the way you feel about that, again, you change your biology. So that's how thoughts and emotions basically affect our destiny. And yes, there are things that we can do with both our thoughts and our emotions. Right. So in that, right, since we, I am a rabbit, like, right? So like when you say happening for me and destiny, like, do you have a higher power? What does your higher power look like? Well, what I am beginning to understand is this, that because everything is energetically connected and because the things that are making up my cells and my energy has been almost a product of my past and it's affected me, energy affects me there. But even before that, I'm made up with the same stuff of the stars, of the mountains, of the animals, 
And if you consider the entire universe and every single energetic morsel of the universe being connected to one big thing, you start to recognize, oh my God, I am a part of something bigger. Mm -hmm. And when you could start to understand that, you start to see the divinity that is in you. Mm -hmm. And so I could say, oh, is there a God for me? Well, Tian Vu, which is basically the ego meat suit part of that, could say that. But I think if we truly understand the nature of who we are, I think many people would say, no, I am God. I am you. You are me. And we are one. For sure. So what is that destiny, right? Because you talk about destiny. You talk about purpose, right? Finding your purpose, right? What is that destiny and purpose, right? So I'm acknowledging that I have divinity in me, but I also, right, when I say why it's happening for me, I also would like, can I get a memo? Like, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. So the question is, I guess, what is purpose? What is our purpose? And I used to go through a analysis, analysis paralysis. Oh man, what's the thing I got to find out there that I got to do? Because look, you know, purpose unlocks longevity, unlocks performance. What's my purpose? And so I used to go through that. And that was actually a very stressful process until I started to study with some of the spiritual shamans, until I started to get a deeper sense and knowing of who we are. You know, Papa Picasso says the meaning of a life is to find our gift and our purpose of life is to give it away. I agree the purpose of our life is to give it away, but I don't think we go find our gift. I think it's more of a process of remembering and finding. If I look at my daughter, she is so free. She explores. She doesn't care if things are dangerous. She'll just go. She'll play. She's full of joy. Mm -hmm. That's the authentic version of who she is. And hopefully, I don't take much of that away, but look, the human journey is to learn these things that then go, oh, man, I can be free. I need to be this. I need to be that. I need to, I can't have that job. We start to basically change who we are, lose our authenticity to become more safe and more loved by trying to belong and fit in with others and to understand who we truly are. Right. But here's the thing that that's awesome is the things that naturally bring you joy, the things that normally light you up, those positive emotional states that I told you about, it's like the universe gifting you with your GPS. So the things that make you feel good, the things that make you light up, that's who you are. Those feelings access that part of who you truly are. And if you just are you, devoid of anything else, if you are just you, you were given these dips. And if you share just you with the world, that's your purpose. You know, there's already an intelligence out there that knows what everything needs. Every single cell in our body has a purpose. The heart cell pumps, the lung cell extracts oxygen, the kidney cells filters blood, and they basically do it for the entire organism of who we are. Mm -hmm. And if we could understand that we as human beings are merely cells in the body of humanity, we just need to exist and recognize we're connected with everything. And so whatever our gifts are that we remember, we just got to remember we're sharing that everybody else. Your purpose is you and it's just to share you, your joy and your authenticity yep. with the world. That's a great way to end this, right? To allow people to sort of to find their own purpose and then find you, right? You can find your book, of course, right? On all wherever number one book sells everywhere. But also attached to the podcast will be so sort of like a lot of assets if you can find sort of like Dr. V and everything he teaches. Doctor, so much. Thank you. This has been really phenomenal and what a great privilege to connect again. Thank you again. And I appreciate the invitation. Thanks for sharing your heart. 
and this message with the world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. This podcast was recorded by Chuva Center. Thank you again all for listening. You can check out our Instagram and our website at Chuva Center, T-S-H-U-V-A-H, Center, C-E-N-T-E-R, or chuvacenter.org. We're on all the social media platforms.